Isn't it good to be together? Yeah. Good to enjoy the presence of God. And the, the amazing thing about God is he can, he can work through Zoom. Isn't that amazing? God, God can use Zoom. Who'd have ever thought it? Um, yeah. Who'd have ever dared not think it, really? Uh, two things happened to me this week, which uh, I didn't expect. Probably more, but two I remember. One, not meant to laugh at that, I'm not, not that old. One was we, we were sitting in the car park at Lovely Hill waiting for Hannah to come out of school, and some of you may have actually seen this on the local news. Uh, we'd been for a little walk, but it, looked, it got a bit rainy, so we went, went in the car, we, and all of a sudden, whew, the car rocked from side to side and stones flew, and I thought, what was that? And then uh, I noticed some people hanging out the car with their phones going, so I turned around, and there it was, a little mini tornado going around the car park. Out of nowhere, whole car, vroom, vroom. Oh. That's got nothing to do with the sermon at all, but I thought I'd tell you it. It, <laughs> it does, however, help us remember uh, that storms come out of nowhere. And the stuff of life is not certain. And that which we assume will be tomorrow might not be tomorrow. And that which we assume will work out in the course of the next year uh, might have some hiccups on the way. We don't know, out of nowhere. The other thing that happened was last night. Well, that's actually this morning, 2.30 this morning. In the sort of distance of my sleep, I heard this beep. Yeah. Beep. Now, of course, our smoke alarm is battery smoke alarm. Uh, it's not linked to the mains, so of course it was telling me the battery was dying on the smoke alarm. So it happens to, I was downstairs in the garage, hunting for the right battery, taking the smoke alarm off the wall, fitting the right battery, putting it back, and it all worked. Uh, that's got nothing to do with the sermon either. <laughs> but, but it does teach you something else, and that is actually it's much more sensible to have one that's plugged into the mains. And that's probably true of our Christian life as well, that it works better if we stay plugged in rather than roam too far from the source of power. And that's what last week's sermon and, and the devotionals have all been about. Today we get to a strange part of John's Gospel. It's uh, fascinating and slightly confusing. I'm going to read it. It uh, starts right at the end of um, chapter 7 and goes into chapter 8. This is what it says from verse 53 of chapter seven. <clears throat> then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him, for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, 
until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. For those of us brought up in uh, the Christian church and familiar with the Christian, uh, with Christian teaching, it's a well-known story. It's confusing, however, simply because, a bit, bit of background here, in the earliest manuscripts, which most of the New Testament rely upon, uh, that story is not there. Um, I say that, it's not quite true. Some of the early manuscripts, some of the early manuscripts have it in Luke's Gospel, some have, it, some have it right at the end of John's Gospel, and you're going, so, mm. and that's why in many Bibles, including this one, it's written in italics, and I guess the idea is make up your own mind, which doesn't seem to me to be a good idea at all. There are various views, but let me point this out. From the very earliest times, the Christian church regarded this as scripture the very earliest times. And when the, uh, the various church councils at different times met together to work out what really was the inspired word of God, they always included it. I personally have not the slightest doubt about its veracity and the fact that it is scripture. Uh, but feel free to research it if you want to. But I thought I'd better flag that one, and that way at least no one's going to come to me afterwards and say, why didn't you tell them that blah, 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 blah. Okay. Some background to what these Pharisees, Jewish leaders, were doing. According to the law of Moses in Leviticus 20, verse 10, and in Deuteronomy 22, 22, both parties involved in adultery should be executed. But the stoning was only specified if the woman was a betrothed virgin. But, this could only be carried out, any kind of execution of, for this crime could only be carried out if the crime was witnessed by at least two witnesses who were prepared to testify to it. That's what the law of Moses said. Also, another thing we ought to realize is that under Roman rule, the Jews had lost the right to carry out the death sentence anyway. Only Jewish courts could impose that. So it's clear here, and the Bible specifies it, that the main thrust is a, a, an attempt to trap Jesus. That's what this is about. If Jesus had said, okay guys, where you go, have fun, stone her, he'd have been breaking Roman law. He wouldn't have done that anyway, but just as an aside. If he'd said, uh, well actually don't do it, he'd have been undermining Jewish law. And so they thought they got him. Here we have, either way, he's going to advocate broken, breaking Roman law, we've got him in that one, or he's going to undermine Jewish law, we've got him in that one. And that's the context in which this happens. It's this particular context and the fact that it's the Pharisees and teachers of the law, I, I suggest is why in the end, the Bible scholars have put this here in the story because it fits well with the conversation at this feast between Jesus and the, and the Jewish leaders. So what can we learn? Uh, I, want to, I want you to think in twos for a little while. Firstly, there are two sins here, probably more, but two sins that become clearly evident in the story. Uh, one is adultery. 
the woman was caught in the act of adultery. Never, ever, in any circumstance, does the Bible describe adultery as anything other than sinful. There's never any excuse for it, never any justification for it, and God will never turn a blind eye to it. It needs to be said, all right? But the other sin on show here was self-righteousness. These Pharisees, these teachers of the law, oh yes, we've got her, we've got her, but actually they didn't really care about her, they cared about getting Jesus. She was just being used as a tool. You can imagine the woman feeling guilt and shame. And you can imagine these smug religious leaders gleefully wanting to punish this sinner. And it didn't cross their minds that their attitude and their use of this woman as a bait to trap Jesus was in itself sinful. It didn't cross their minds. After all, if she was caught in adultery, where was the bloke? According to Jewish law, they should both be executed. Where was he? Ah. It was all very selective. It was all very stage managed. It was an attempt to trap Jesus. So, two sins. Adultery, self-righteousness. One, easy to spot. Well, if you're there at the time, it's easy to spot, I guess. Just, uh, I don't mean to lower the tone here. It just blows my mind that adultery could be independently witnessed by two witnesses who can testify. That's just blows my mind. But adultery, clear. Self-righteousness, yeah. That's more easily camouflaged, isn't it? More easily camouflaged. So there's two sins. There's two actions of Jesus in response as well. Jesus, first of all, exposed sin. He didn't need to expose the sin of the woman. That was evident. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't pleading innocence. It just was true. And we can't know what Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger, except it's interesting that it did say he wrote. He didn't draw. He didn't doodle. He wrote. Some have suggested that he may have actually written the names of those among the Pharisees who'd been with this woman. That would have been interesting. Some suggest that he, he wrote some of the sins that these people were guilty of. But we don't know. It's guesswork. But what we do know is that Jesus' words hit the mark. Right on target. Let those who are without sin throw the first stone. And in doing that, those words just exposed the whole, the whole charade. It exposed the whole issue of self-righteousness. You know, she's guilty. We're pure. Let's stone her. Now, uh, the Greek word here clearly refers to any kind of sin, not specifically the sin of adultery. So Jesus wasn't saying to these, uh, these people, uh, let anybody who hasn't committed adultery throw the first stone. He was literally saying, any one of you who dares to claim that they are totally without sin, go on, start hoying, to use the local phrase. The oldest got the point first. It's it, not surprising, really. Uh, one of the joys of growing older, this is not meant to be patronizing to anybody, one of the joys of growing older is that you've seen a bit more of life and you suddenly have a more realistic understanding of yourself. Uh, you've already had a lot of your dreams crumble down and an awful lot of the things you thought were you were impervious to have already trapped you. You already know how weak you are, you already know how frail you are, 
uh, those things come with age. Well, if you're wise enough, they come with age. The older ones first began to go away. You, you can almost imagine, can't you, the, the sound of the rocks dropping. Thump, 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 thump. And then the younger ones, and off they went. Jesus exposed the sin, but he did something else. He offered grace. Grace is the free and undeserved favor of God. Uh, according to the Bible, we're saved by grace through faith. That uh, we don't earn salvation. It is a gift of God that no one can possibly ever deserve. And here, Jesus is offering grace. He's offering favor, something which can't be deserved. He's, he says to this woman, he dealt with her firmly, but tenderly, said, where are your accusers who's condemning you? They've gone, I won't condemn you either, but go and leave your life of sin. Now, the odd part here is that Jesus could have done. He was the one who was without sin. If anybody had the right to pick up a stone and throw it, he was the one. But he didn't. It also needs to be said that Jesus was not, in saying this, condoning what the woman had done. He wasn't saying to her, oh, it's all right, it doesn't matter. The condemnation that the Pharisees wanted to bring to the woman was stoning to death. Jesus was simply saying to her, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to condemn you in that sense. But he then said something very important. Go and leave your life of sin. So two actions of Jesus. He exposes the sin and he offers grace. By the way, that's what the presence of Jesus always does. As soon as you bring Jesus into a context of, of human life, into a family, into the life of an individual, he'll do those two things. He'll expose that which is short of God's standards, and he'll offer grace. That's the nature of Jesus. But there are two responses here as well. We've had two sins, two actions of Jesus, two responses to those actions. The Pharisees, their response was to walk away. Now, you may think, well, good, so they should have done because, you know, their self-righteousness was exposed. But actually, no, they shouldn't. What do you do if your sin is exposed? You look for a savior. You look for forgiveness. You look, you look for grace, don't you? But they didn't. They didn't turn and face the fact of their wrongdoing. They didn't turn and own up to it. They just walked away. The woman, she stayed. She stayed and waited the verdict of Jesus. Oh, that's something, isn't it? I'll say more about that in a moment. You see, with these two responses is exposed a choice that remains for all human beings and for all of us in this room, even this morning. We know the Pharisees didn't wait to hear what Jesus would have said to them and if they'd said, we recognize our need, Lord, what should we do? He'd have offered grace to them. Of course he would. We know the woman did wait. Did she respond to that offer of grace? Now there's a question. We don't know. But if early sources are right that suggest this woman was really Mary Magdalene, which is possible, then certainly she did. But we don't know. We always tend to think that repentance has to come before grace. If we repent, God will offer his grace to us. It's not actually a biblical concept, not in those terms. 
And I want to try to explain what I mean. We cannot repent unless there is first a touch of grace applied to our lives. There has to first of all be an opening of the eyes, an opening of the spiritual sensitivity, an opening of the realization that I'm wrong, I'm a sinner. And until that happens to us, the capacity to repent isn't there. So actually, repentance is a response to grace. Grace goes on after that, of course, and we need to respond. But repentance should be a response to grace. Romans 2 verse 4 tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God. We were talking in our home group uh, this week, and I can't particularly remember what context it came up, but it was to do with uh, the Holy Spirit and how God operates in our lives. And one of the things I shared about my own life is that the thing, the thing that most gets to me, uh, I think it was about being the temple of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and falling short of God's standards. The thing that most gets to me about that is bringing the reputation of God into the dirt. When I know I've failed him, when I know, when I know I've, I, I've got things wrong, what really breaks my heart is the understanding that I've compromised Jesus because he lives within me. I, I, in my own mind, I kind of liken it to how I was brought up. Uh, my parents didn't have to discipline me particularly because I was so perfect. <laughs> I wasn't, of course, but I, you know. By human standards, I wasn't a rebel, never, never have been. But there were times, and it didn't actually require any action of my parents, and my mother didn't do it on purpose, but as soon as I realized that I'd hurt my mother, I was devastated. That's all it took. And in a sense, that's become part of my walk with God. As soon as I realize that actually I've let God down, Breaks my heart. So, the kindness of God, when he comes to us in our failure, when he comes to us in our sin, and before we come to Christ even, before we come to faith, when he comes to us and says, I'm not going to condemn you either. Wow. The only response which takes us out of the shame and guilt and eventual punishment is a response of repentance to grace. If you want another example of that biblically, look at Zacchaeus. Love the story of Zacchaeus. He little bloke shins up a tree to see Jesus because he'd heard about Jesus. He's a tax collector. All ta Roman tax collectors at the time, or those who collected taxes for the Romans, sort of took their cut, charged too much. They were hated, they were vilified, they were beyond the pale. He's up the tree, Jesus stops, and he says, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to come to your house, or as the old song says, I'm coming to your house for tea. Yeah? That's grace offered. Jesus goes to the house of a sinful man, and you can imagine the gossipers, you know, and in response to the grace that's offered, Zacchaeus repents. If I have cheated anybody, I'll pay it back four times over. Half, half of what I have, I'm going to give to the poor. That is the response of repentance to grace. So I want to tell you this morning that God loves you. God loves you passionately. It isn't a half-hearted love. It was a love which took Jesus to the cross, 
where he hung and bled and died because that was the only way in which your sin and my sin could be atoned for. And you may think, what a cruel father for doing this to his son. But it broke the heart of the father as well because they were in this together. The whole of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit together took the pain, the pain of separation, in Jesus' case, the physical pain of crucifixion, and paid the price of my sin and your sin. That's grace offered. There it is, it's a gift. Utter forgiveness, total and utter forgiveness by the creator of the universe, offered to you. A gift. You can never earn it. You can never deserve it. There's only one thing you can do with it, and that is respond in repentance. Lord, I'm not going to do it my way anymore. I'll take the gift and do it your way. Well, actually, that's not the only thing you can do. The other thing you can do is to turn away and walk away because you don't want to have to face the shame and guilt that you know nags away deep in your heart and your soul. The choice still remains, you see, when we come to look at the cross of Jesus. What will you do with it? What will you do with grace offered? Will you respond? Or will you turn away and complete, continue meandering, continue walking around in circles until maybe the next opportunity, if another opportunity comes? And all the time, in love, a savior is pleading Will you come? Will you take advantage of what I have done for you? So if, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never turned to him in repentance and faith and said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? I trust you with all my heart. If you've never done that, please, this morning, take the opportunity. Talk to myself or Andy or, or just take the opportunity because that's why Jesus died, out of love for you. But I want to finish by talking to those of us who have made that choice and that step of faith and who are already Christians. I don't think I'm the only Christian in this room who from time to time has let God down. If there's anybody here who can pick up the stone and throw it at me. <laughs> and that choice is always there for Christians too. Because God's response when we fail is to offer grace. Always. The cross of Jesus is still there. The blood's still being shed. We've just remembered it here. The price of sin has been paid. Now we've got a choice. We can either get so wrapped up in self spiritual flagellation so wrapped up in and I'm, I'm such a, a miserable worm and sinner there's no hope for me we turn away we walk away and we wallow in our guilt and shame we can do that or we can come back and expose our guilt and shame and go through the whole process of the tears and the heartache and say lord i have failed you and i'm sorry but if we're facing him and talking to him we know where grace is when we turn away we're turning our back on grace all through years of ministry I've, I've witnessed Christians come through the unexpected storms see it did have something to do with the sermon I've witnessed Christians come through unexpected storms and some some have turned away some heartache some tragedy some whatever has come and they've, they've kind of built this wall up and and, and 
they, they know what they should do, but they, they, they constantly sort of, I'm not going to admit it. And the tragedy of it, because it just spurns the deep love of a savior who has never turned away from you. Because God doesn't turn away from his children. He just doesn't. Always turn and face grace. Never turn away from it. Because God's free, undeserved favor comes from a heart of love, and he loves you. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8 verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There just isn't. So why wallow in a corner of self-destruction when the heart of God is still for you? Let me pray. Father, I, I want to thank you because this story cuts to the very heart of how you deal with us, cuts to the very heart of what happens when sin meets grace. And I, I do pray, wherever we're at this morning, Lord, if there are folk here who genuinely have never turned to you, never in gratitude for your grace repented and put their trust in you, would you give them the wisdom to do that and the courage to do that? And for the rest of us, Lord, would you continue to teach us that you never want us to hide from you. You always want us to face you. However much we may have failed, however much we need to be rebuilt, you're the God of grace and the God of mercy and the God of love. And we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We bless you for your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.